Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness podcast series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness webcast series held on March 7, 2018, focusing on repatriating previously taxed income and accessing foreign cash. The panelists for the webcast were Ken Kuykendall, PwC's Tax Services Leader, Jeff Endress, a PwC tax partner focusing on international tax issues, Julie Allen, a PwC tax partner focusing on mergers and acquisitions, and Colin Ryan, a PwC advisory partner focusing on deals. This podcast excerpt consists of a discussion among the panelists on issues companies are facing with respect to repatriating cash, including structural considerations. All right, so why don't we move into the next section. As we do, Jeff, this will probably be a little bit of a reference for you. The polling question, the most common answer here was all of the above. So as you start to dig into what are some of the issues here, and I turn to you, it seems like people are dealing with all the above. And that does not uh, surprise me in the least bit. You know, I I think as we started this, you know, 965 came along and it it required you to have a mandatory inclusion of your earnings, but then... All of the issues that have been coming uh, up lately have been about as you start to repatriate this foreign cash, there are numerous things that um, are still unclear and have yet to be addressed. And some of that comes around, you know, the, the withholding taxes that are assessed on it. Some, some of it comes around the uh, basis and the previously taxed income that you're going to have. And all of those things have caused a, a collection of issues for our clients as they're dealing with, you know, what seemed to be the right idea and the right concept of, you have a mandatory inclusion of your foreign earnings, you should be able to get your capital back relatively quickly and easily. And uh, we're running into all sorts of things as we're going through these. So we have a few examples that um, walk through some of the issues that people are dealing with or thinking about. And and to be fully transparent, these are just a couple high-level examples. There are hundreds of variations of what are in these couple examples that we've been dealing with as a firm and, and with all of our clients. So what, what this is showing is to the extent that you have a fiscal year taxpayer and they're in the year in which they have their 965 includable amount in this example at the Chinese uh, CFC level, they're looking to also bring the cash back to the U.S. A big reason that people are happy about tax reform is you now can get your capital home without an additional top-up tax. And so to the extent you had an inclusion in your foreign country and you can bring it back, that's what people are going to want to do. Um, in this example, the Chinese CFC distributes its cash up to the Dutch holding company that owns it, and there are incremental withholding taxes that are suffered by the Chinese CFC as it distributes its cash to the Dutch parent. And the, the question is, you know, what should happen to those withholding taxes that are incurred by the Chinese CFC as it distributes its money to the, the Dutch parent? Uh, What we would assume in this example is that those withholding taxes should go in the Dutch BV's uh, pool. The Dutch BV's pool will have a 965 includable amount uh, on November 30th of the current year. And those withholding taxes would be allowed to use to partially offset the toll charge that the company otherwise would have. Those withholding taxes would be subject to the same haircut that the rest of the includable taxes are um, for the Dutch BV level, but at least you'd be able to get a partial credit for the withholding taxes that you'd have to pay from a Chinese CFC perspective. The other thing that is shown is, you know, you don't necessarily have the full 750 of cash available at the Chinese CFC because you have to pay 75 of withholding in this example so that when you ultimately get it back to the U.S. parent 
rather than having $825 of cash, you have 750 of cash that would ultimately come home as part of this distribution. The next example is, is a, another pretty interesting one, and it touches off of what Julie had mentioned at the beginning of the presentation, and that is, you know, withholding taxes and other taxes are disallowed to the extent that you have a 245 cap A exempt distribution to the U.S. This is an example where we have a Canadian CFC. It's held first here by the U.S. parent. Let's just assume for the example the Canadian CFC doesn't have paid up capital so that to the extent the Canadian CFC was to make a distribution to its U.S. parent, there would be 5% withholding tax that would be incurred by the Canadian CFC and would be a 901 you know, credit of the U.S. parent for the withholding. The distribution from the Canadian CFC in this example is of its PTI. It's not a dividend that's relying on 245 cap A. It's a distribution of income that has been previously taxed. So we've been getting this question a lot from our clients. Should you be able to get a foreign tax credit for the distribution of the PTI from the Canadian CFC because you're not relying on 245 cap A when you make the distribution? And we, we think the answer is yes, it may be a full foreign tax credit or it may be still subject to a, a proportionate haircut similar to the includable amount that the Canadian CFC had to have for its 965 inclusion year. So things that you'll want to be thinking about um, as you're bringing your capital home. And again, there are a thousand versions of this type of example, but just want people to be thinking about it and be mindful of it. So maybe I can take this and spend a little bit of time on um, the unremitted earnings or the outside basis difference assertion because all of the challenges that you're in the midst of talking through right now all factor into that. So um, I think when reform happened and we moved to this territorial system, and I'll put it in quotes because we still have to deal with things like guilty and, and other, other areas out there, um, I think there was a traditional notion that, wow, we won't have to deal with the unremitted earnings assertion. We won't have to deal with outside basis difference um, thinking from an accounting perspective, which isn't really the case um, because of all the considerations you're talking about, which is even though the income's been taxed or in the future, subject to what happens from a guilty standpoint, there isn't, there's a dividends received deduction coming back into the U.S., you still have to think through withholding taxes. Um, you still need to think through limitations on the ability to distribute. You still need to think through things like the amount of basis that you've got and whether or not you're going to trigger capital gains. And all those things factor into whether or not you need to accrue tax currently on your future repatriation ex uh, expectations. So I personally have seen a pretty active exercise out of companies to not just assume that all the cash is coming back, but instead to start thinking through what, what are my uses. And I'll go back to um, the earlier point we made. You know, that has to factor in what we're doing as far as foreign debt and whether or not we're going to have additional cash because we're borrowing overseas or what, what are we doing in, in that space and how that factors into cash needs overseas and how that factors into what we're going to do from a repatriation standpoint. So um, I know we've got a tax accounting services webcast coming up at the end of the month. They'll probably deal with this as well as a lot of the interim accounting considerations to think through. But um, it, it's not as simple as, you know, it isn't relevant anymore from a standpoint of the accounting assertion. To be honest with you, it's probably could become just as complicated and just shifted over into thinking about all these other considerations. And I do think that it is even more complicated in today's environment because, you know, to the extent that you are going to suffer incremental taxes as you get this capital back, in, in the post-965 world, you have to be able to determine do you have the ability to utilize those credits yep. if they're going to be born in your system. So, so. That's right. 
Jeff, I'm going to come back to you and you can continue on with some of the other considerations to think through. I think this is just something that all of you are becoming you know, pretty aware of very quickly now, which is we have a 965 uh, PTI system and people want to bring their capital back, but it's not as easy as just paying a dividend of uh, all your foreign cash out of all these local countries. There are many issues that um, come up depending on which jurisdictions you're in. Uh, distributable reserves, depending on you know what you have from a legal perspective, can you just distribute you know ten million dollars out of a country, or do you have to have sufficient reserves in that country that allows you to extract your capital? Um, some countries require you to have audited financial statements uh, in order to get your cash out, and those usually take a period of time to have those from the prior year. Um, you may have local country treaty clearance certificates that you need to get before you're comfortable paying the dividends. Um, there are various impairments that can happen in certain countries that could impair the ability of its holding company parent to get their cash out. Uh, many, many things that I think people just need to be thinking through from a timing perspective so that they're aware of that significant amount of foreign cash might take longer than uh, was previously anticipated to get back. This one is uh, fascinating uh, to me, and it's <laughs> become a little bit of a, a, an issue for a lot of our clients, depending on what your facts are. And let me just uh, set the stage of the example. But basically what the example is showing is that you have a company on the left, CFC1, that had a deficit as of the time that you had the 965 inclusion amount, and a company on the right, CFC2, that had $10 of positive earnings at the time that you would have the measurement date for toll charge purposes. The rule allows you to allocate the deficit from CFC1 to CFC2 such that the amount that was includable for 965 ultimately ends up being zero in this example under 965A. The question then has, has come up, what is the basis in your PTI at CFC2? So CFC2 presumably would also have you know, $10 of cash in this example that most taxpayers would want to then distribute that 10 of, ta of cash back to the U.S. But if we're unclear on whether or not CFC2 actually has basis in its PTI because the 965B4 PTI that was created, it's not clear under 961 that you get basis in that PTI. We're not sure that you should be. You can distribute that 10 of cash back to the U.S. from CFC2 to the U.S. parent because you may not have sufficient basis in that attribute, and you might have a gain that results from that distribution. And again, there are very uh, many, many different versions of this example, but I think it's something for our, our clients to just be aware of. And a lot of people had deficits that were allocated all over the place as part of their toll charge inclusion. Be mindful of this issue and, and be careful on just being uh, thinking that you can just get your cash back to the U.S. without other U.S. consequences. And maybe that, that's an important point to make here. And, and again, I'm, I'm just conveying sort of discussions that I've had or I, I've, I've been seeing with companies out there. And you've covered very well a lot of these considerations for people to think through as it relates to trying to get cash back. I will tell you the knee-jerk reaction coming out of a lot of businesses was, okay, now that we are paying the toll charge tax and we're picking up all the um, taxes, I really would like to have all the cash back. Um, so please do whatever you can to repatriate the cash. And there's a lot of considerations to be thought through here. As you just talked about, it's not as simple as just cutting dividends and bringing them out and, and trying to work through that. And that, that could take an extended period of time to try and find the most tax efficient way or the most efficient way to bring that, that cash back. So 
to the extent that those questions are coming up, I think the point is just to be mindful that there's a lot of other elements out here besides the amount of U.S. tax on the distribution to sort of think through. And, and I know organizations are working through that, but just being mindful of that's important. And our, and our clients and, and um, our partners around the country are knee-deep in all those issues. And I think the notices that have come out have clarified some of these issues, but certainly not all. And uh, it's an interesting profession right now because daily there are things that come up that there's not a lot of guidance on, and we're forced to, to make some decisions and some tough calls on some of these issues. Yeah. Because people want their money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jeff and Colin, we've covered off um, up front some of the business considerations that need to be thought through around funding the business and the types of things that we're going to do. Jeff, you've done a great job of covering off. Well, here's all these specific tax things to be cognizant of as you're sort of bringing cash back. You know, the, the question I would like to, to get some, some feedback on is, how does all this change the degree of collaboration that should be happening between tax folks and business folks as they're trying to take all this in from a tax reform standpoint? And again, you, you have different constituents you're usually dealing with within the organization. Sure, I'll, I'll start, then Colin, you can take it. Um, sure. But, you know, I, just, I think with some of these issues we've already discussed as far as how you, you know, look at your external borrowing and your internal borrowing and, you know, how your capital should be managed, as well as the stuff that we're going to talk about in a minute here on the, on the presentation, which is what does your global footprint look like? You know, where are your people? Where are your substance? You know, how does the um, world look at your tax structure and your business structure on a go-forward basis? It just causes tax and treasury and accounting and legal and the CFO and the business to all be much more aligned and you know, corporate development as well yeah. on a go-forward basis. I couldn't agree more, and I think breaking down those silos that might have happened or, or are still happening because they're different departments and when to pull somebody in um, to model it out, I, I think once you have to break down those silos and get everybody talking um, right away. Because if you don't do that, you're going to model it out, and you're not going to see the true economics, and therefore you might make a bad decision. All right, guys. So we're in the home stretch here. Um, we're going to dive into some legal entity simplification um, post-tax reform. Um, I know we're, we'll be tight on time sort of finishing here, so why don't we go through these sections and, and just sort of point out some of the considerations. I will say the audience polling question here talked about holding company structures, which really feeds into, again, what we're going to talk about here in this next session. It's like we planned it. <laughs> it. It is interesting that one of the most popular responses was legal entity holding company simplification. And I do think that that is 100% relevant for all of you out there that have had historic multi-tier uh, international holding company structures that were there for a variety of reasons. And one of the things that's going to you know, be impactful for a lot of our clients is the MLI uh, that's you know, going to be ratified by a significant number of, of foreign countries over the next several months. And to the extent that that is ratified, you know, it, it will become applicable for these uh, clients as of 1-1-2019. And, and basically, as that becomes more relevant, as you think about your holding and financing structures, your uh, IP companies, where your capital is, you really need to be mindful of, you know, the substance in those jurisdictions. Are you going to qualify for the new, more strict standards that are um, imposed by the MLI? And just thinking through all of that holistically as an organization, as well as the U.S., you know, now having a more friendly structure and, and capital repatriation system. Yeah, and Jeff, I would say as you focus on the U.S. before tax reform, that was less favorable, now maybe more favorable. And all of the work we did on tiered structures and getting companies into those to get around, you know, the withholding or the distributable reserves, 
those might not be so important now. I mean, they may. I think it's a whole exercise of analyzing it, but may not be the best structure. It might be a flat structure that's more important for the company and better for their operations. It, it really is fascinating. I mean, depending on you know the footprint of, of the different clients and the deal work also that's involved, you may still end up in one of these more historic structures, like the example that's uh, on, in the slides, where you still need multiple levels of holding and financing companies for various reasons. Because of the MLI, you need to be mindful of, you know, where's your substance and where are your people and how you're aligning your business with these types of structures. Or you might simply say, like the poll seems to indicate, you might want to simplify what you have in your organization and you might not need as many uh, legal entities and, and some of the different jurisdictions that you've had in the past. Before we leave this slide, Colin, maybe comment on this from a non-tax perspective as to how you see some of what we're talking about and how the structure ultimately looks get impacted from a standpoint of where value concentration happens and where people are looking to extract value via deals. Absolutely, I think because of this, people are going back and looking at their overall deal strat or their um, business strategy, their supply chain, and their overall structure. Um, because companies should be looking at um, where is val value concentrated? And what we've seen historically is it's a third, a third, a third. A third creates um, the vast majority of, of your value, a third conserves it, and a third destroys it. So now with, with the change in rates like we talked about and you're um, looking at where the intrinsic value and that, where that value is con now concentrated, you may shift your business structure to look like something that hasn't been looked historically. Yeah, absolutely. We've actually gone the opposite direction in some cases. Nice. So. so before we get to the polling question, Jeff, you want to, and this was something people were talking about, you want to talk a little bit about just considerations in the holding structure or holding company structures? And I, I think basically what we're trying to show you here is, is although the U.S. rules have become more flexible for purposes of now having a territorial regime and the foreign rules have become more um, strict as far as having, you know, sufficient substance and people aligned with with your business as a result of MLI and ATAD and the other initiatives on a global basis, there are still many reasons you might want to consider retaining a significant portion of your foreign holding company structure, if not all of it, very fact-specific. Um, but, you know, back to the M&A world, I'm still in a lot of discussions with our clients where they're looking at foreign acquisitions and Sometimes the holding company structure that they've had historically still makes a lot of sense, depending on what the local country rules are and how you can deal with the acquisitions of those targets. And these these uh, items would be reasons you might want to still retain some of that uh, structure rather than necessarily having a what I'd call a flat structure where the U.S. owns the world kind of on a first-tier level. That's great. With that... Thank you, panelists. I think it's been a really great discussion. And for those of you who joined us for the discussion today, thank you so much for taking a portion of your day to, to uh, talk with us about tax.